Would you please open your Bibles Luke chapter 11, verses 14 to 23. Hear now the word of the living God. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things from out of your word. Unite our hearts from distraction. Dear Lord, open our eyes to see what is truly there and what is reality, Lord. The reality of unseen and spiritual forces, Father. Help us to see, Lord, that we are embroiled in a cosmic conflict now, Lord, and that our lives have immense, weighty significance. We ask, O Holy Spirit, that you would illuminate this word to us and that it would pierce our hearts. Open the windows, Lord, of your word, and that we may see what is true. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Charles Taylor was a Canadian social philosopher, born in 1931. And Charles Taylor, he wrote a book called A Secular Age. And he described something that he observed that was uh, all throughout of Western society, this, this sense of felt flatness. And the idea was that because of this culture, Because we see the world as a closed-in system with no supernatural realm, where physical matter is all that there is, and everything is reducible to that, because of this worldview, this closed-in system, which isn't porous or permeable or open, it created this sense of flatness. He says... Our actions, 
goals, achievements, and the like have a lack of weight, gravity, thickness, substance. There is a deeper resonance which they lack, which we, should, which we feel should be there. So even when the culture refuses to believe in this transcendent spiritual realm, we still bury our mothers. We still believe that her life has more meaning than just being a clump of cells that occupied space on, on earth for a, moment, for a moment of time. We still, when we hold newborn infants, and we look at them in their eyes, we still believe that this life, this little baby, has immeasurable significance. There's a sense of flatness, though. Um, there's a deeper resonance we feel should be there, which cannot be compatible with this materialistic worldview. And really, we feel this mostly in the mundane. This is what he writes. He says, some people feel a terrible flatness in the everyday. And this experience has been identified particularly with commercial, industrial, or consumer society. They feel emptiness of the repeated accelerating cycle of desire and fulfillment in consumer culture. The cardboard quality of bright supermarkets or neat row housing in, in a clean suburb, or driving on the I-94 back and forth to work. And we ask, what is the purpose of all this? And so my question is, why? Why do we feel this emptiness, this flatness? Why is our culture haunted by the specter of meaninglessness? Why do we, why do we yearn for the transcendence the transcendent eternal significance for something more. Something more which is not empirically observable by sense perception. Why do we yearn for something more? Could it be because there is something more? C.S. Lewis, he, uh, I quote a lot of C.S. Lewis. Um, in Mere Christianity... He said, creatures, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world, world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And that's what Christ came to reveal. He, he tells us to our secular culture that there is another world. That we have desires for this transcendent, eternal significance. Why? Because there is an eternal, unobservable, unseen, transcendent, heavenly realm. And that we as human beings are part of something so much bigger than ourselves. 
And really, that's just my hope this morning, that we would see space-time, really this universe and history, all of it, we would see it, this history as we inhabit it, not with low ceilings, not two-dimensionally, with flatness, not closed in, but as part of this enormous, heavenly, spiritual, invisible realm. That the Holy Spirit would remove this, the blackout curtains of, of skepticism and unbelief, which keeps the sunlight of truth from illuminating this room we call the universe. Really, that's what faith is, isn't it? It's seeing the unseen. Your hardest boss, he wrote in a sermon called Heavenly Mindedness. He describes faith. He says, faith is the organ, of, organ for apprehension. So it's like an instrument. It's like glasses. Faith is the organ for apprehension of unseen and future realities, giving access and contact with another world. It is the hand stretched out through vast distances of space and time, whereby the Christian draws himself the things far beyond so that they become actual to him. And that's my hope for Beacon Light and for myself, is that we would have our hands stretched out. That we would stretch out and see what's truly there. That we would have contact with another world. This is an astounding reality that we have to come to grips with, most especially in our naturalistic society. So, I have two points for you. Um, the kingdom of God has come upon you, and we have two points. Not by Beelzebul, and then, but by the finger of God. So let's look at this in verses 14 to 16. It reads, if you have your Bibles open, please follow along. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke. And the people marveled, but some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. So there are two groups that respond negatively to Jesus' miracle. Um, the second group was a skeptical one, and they demanded another sign. Uh, that's not the concern in this passage. Jesus, he addresses them later in verses 29 to 32 with the sign of Jonah. He says, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it. But in this passage, the focus is on the first group of accusers. The ones in verse 15. The ones who accuse him of being empowered by Beelzebul or Satan. So notice, they're perfectly happy to admit that Jesus miraculously healed this man, exercised the demon. They weren't questioning if this man was legitimately healed. They fully accept the miracle. So what's the problem? The problem is not that he was healed, the problem was, how did Jesus do this? How was this possible? By what source of authority? And they, I think, reasoning, reasoning in their minds, they admit, well, it can't be a human source because a weaker being can't overcome a stronger one, namely Satan. 
And, well, we refuse to admit that Jesus is the Son of God. So clearly then, by deduction, Jesus must be a lackey for Satan. Jesus must be a tool, a hammer in the hand of the devil. Jesus must be a lieutenant in Beelzebub's army. Well, look how Jesus responds. He gives two arguments against this. The first one in verses 17 to 18, he makes a case against the argument itself, if you can read it there with me. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? So why would Satan promote something that would destroy his own kingdom? Satan is evil. He's wicked, but he's not a moron. Why would Satan, would Satan really release mustard gas when his army is downwind? Would he really call an airstrike on his own troops? Would he really deputize Jesus Christ to wreak havoc in his own backyard? Well, the, the obvious answer is, of course not. That's just irrational. That's outlandish. Illogical. But Jesus keeps going in verse 19. He makes a case against the accusers themselves. He says, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. So he's saying, you accept the fact that your own sons, your own people, your own Jewish, Jewish exorcists, you say that when they cast out demons, well, it's by the power of God. Well, then why don't you apply that same criterion with me? If you are unwilling to label them as servants of Satan, why do you do it to me? Clearly, they are biased. Clearly, they made a decision already ahead of time against Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is showing them their biased presuppositions here. He brilliantly refutes their accusation. Now, before we move on, I want to pause here, and this is what I want to do. I want us to consider the massive subterranean presuppositions involved in this. There are breathtaking premises of this dialogue. Huge. Look at verse 18. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom, his, Satan's kingdom, stand? So the breathtaking assumption is that Satan has a kingdom. Satan has a kingdom? He's, a- he's actively ruling. And he's labeled the prince of demons, meaning there is this chain of command, a hierarchy of powers. There's this chain of command made up of these superhuman, invisible entities. And yes, I think we, have to, we must admit and we must affirm that they are under the sovereignty of God. They're like leashed dogs. But these invisible, demonic forces, they have a kingdom which is hostile to the kingdom of God. So then the question is, where is this kingdom? 
Is it in some underworld? Is it somewhere in space on a planet? Where is it? Listen to 1 John 5.19. The whole world, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Satan's kingdom territory is this whole world. In this present age, Ephesians 2.2, this is Paul speaking. He says, you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. In other words, the point is this. The world we inhabit right now, this world, there are two layers of reality. There's the seen and there's the unseen. There's the natural and there's the supernatural, and they overlap. And Satan's kingdom is far from being this foreign power. The invisible realities of Satan's kingdom produces visible results on earth, like this mute man. Meaning Satan's influence is on the entire world as we see it, in its politics, in its commerce and industry, in its entertainment, in its philosophies, in its education. He infiltrates every sphere of life to cause sin and death. And his highest aim is in 2 Corinthians 4.4. This is what Paul says. He says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. Why? To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So Satan does everything he can to blind this world from seeing Christ. He slows down missions and evangelism. He accuses, believer, he accuses believers and he debilitates them and paralyzes them because they fall to sin. He distracts us in prayer. And when we gather, even right now, the siren going off, he's trying to distract us and pull us away. We need to see then that we, you have to have this wider lens The problem of mankind isn't simply sin and guilt. That's a problem. But there's also this problem of this bondage, the blindness caused by Satan who reigns in this world. So then, the felt flatness, this yearning for something more, is there. Why? Because there is something gargantuan happening. There's something of cosmic proportions occurring. The radically countercultural premise is that there are two layers of reality and two kingdoms at war with each other. That, the, that in this cosmic, spiritual, invisible reality, there is violent warfare. There is actual conflict between 
two very real kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. So no matter how much we want to lock ourselves inside, we can still feel the rumblings of grenade blasts. We can still see through the windows the fog of war and a smoke-filled landscape. We can still hear the air raid sirens go off in the distance. And if we buy into this lie of this closed-in, naturalistic, physical, material-only worldview, if we hide under the blanket of naturalism, if we fail to see our universe as porous and permeable and open, well, then we give Satan the biggest advantage. Because what makes us most vulnerable is believing there is no cosmic invisible warfare. And if it's outlandish and illogical and biased to assume Jesus casts out demons by Beelzebul, the same is true to believe that there is no Beelzebul and that there is no demons. Well, then, if it is not by Beelzebul or Satan, by what authority does Jesus Christ cast out demons? Well, look at verses 22, 20 to 23. He does it by the finger of God. Verse 20, If it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So you can't cast out demons if you're weaker than Satan. And if you won't cast out demons, if you are Satan, well, the logical conclusion is that you cast out demons by the, by the finger of God. And if this is true, then the greatest of all implications follow. What does Jesus say? He says, if this is true, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. There is no vacuum of power. Where the, kingdom of Satan, where the kingdom of Satan is destroyed, where his power is pushed back, that's where the rule of God begins. And Jesus doesn't say the kingdom of God has drawn near. He doesn't say the kingdom of God is about to come. He says the kingdom of God has has come upon you. It has arrived. God's reign is in the present, meaning these exorcisms aren't just a cure for a few people. It's not just mere proofs to show Jesus' power. Jesus is saying that these exorcisms, these exorcisms, these works are itself the manifestation of God's rule. That the work is itself an act of bringing to an end Satan's power. That this is the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. That the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God is pushing its way in with force into this world. And God is laying claim on the very space and time. This world, this location, this place, he's laying claim on it. And he's doing it through Jesus Christ. The decisive entry of the kingdom of God has arrived. And the initial defeat of Satan has occurred. Jesus Christ said in Luke 10 verse 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. 
It has arrived. The kingdom of God has been inaugurated. And this is why Jesus gives the illustration in verses 21 to 22. Again, follow along. It reads, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. So Satan here is clearly the strong man, and he's fully armed, Jesus says. So the guards are standing in position, and the watchtowers are filled, and the barbed wire is set in place. And he has a palace, and the palace is called the world. And he has goods which he, which he is keeping safe, and those goods are called human souls. But there's a stronger one, isn't there? And his name is Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is reasserting his kingdom. And we see it in three ways here. Just very quickly, the three ways he's doing it. So Jesus is not on the defensive. What does it say? He says, he attacks Satan and overcomes him. So this is interesting. He doesn't attack the palace. He doesn't attack the palace. He attacks specifically the strong man. It's almost as if Jesus is on a reconnaissance mission and he seeks and by skillful maneuvering, he kills the general without any human casualties. So he attacks and he overcomes the strong man. Secondly, he takes away his armor. So again, he doesn't destroy the strong man. He doesn't do it. But he removes Satan's power to fight. He delivered the decisive blow to Satan, meaning he limited the power of Satan, which guarantees, it guarantees the future and final judgment of Satan. You have to think in the already and not yet categories here. <clears throat> and thirdly, it says he divides the spoil, meaning he frees the human property that Satan held. This is really a rescue mission, isn't it? He releases the souls of the people who have been held in bondage to Satan, and he does so through his death and resurrection. In other words, Christ came. He came in order to displace an opposing rule, and he does so through violent Warfare. And the main target is not human or political entities. The ultimate conflict is at its core invisible, involving invisible enemies. And the outworking of redemption involves the invisible superterrestrial realities. This invisible unseen victory. And far, far from being this detached, philosophical, abstract idea, look at what Jesus says in verse 23. He brings it down. He has us involved. He says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. He's talking to to us. Jesus is saying here, your life is very significant. 
If you feel like there's something more in this life, maybe it's because that you are part of this wide, all-encompassing, two-layered drama. You are embroiled in this cosmic, invisible warfare. Mankind is a crucial, a crucial part of the battleground. And the unseen battle, this unseen battle, therefore, has everything to do with you and I. In fact, even if you don't even believe in this unseen battle, you are still a part of it. It's not simply you versus God, as if it's you by yourself standing on one side or the other. We are involved in a war with only two kingdoms, and there's, there's a line drawn in the sand. There's the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God, meaning there is no third independent party. There's no isolationist policy. There's no Switzerland. There's no agnosticism or indecision or neutrality. Whoever is with me, whoever is against me, whoever is not with me is against me. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians 1. He says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. So, domain of darkness Satan's kingdom, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So you can't just be simply taken out of the domain of darkness. That's not how it's done. You have to be transferred over to somewhere else. And there's only one other option. It's the kingdom of his beloved son. There's no fence sitting And well, maybe you're asking yourself right now, <clears throat> well, then how do we make spiritual warfare? Or maybe you're asking, um, what are the practical applications here? And I think that would require, require a, a series of sermons. Um, but at the moment, I just want to stress this. Uh, we as Christians, we live in two halves of reality. Just let that settle in. We live in two halves of reality. The seen and the unseen. The supernatural and the natural. And yet so many Christians live as if there's only one. There's only the seen. And maybe they would say, well, I'm glad to have this unseen reality after I die. But right now, I'll live for what I can see. And we live half-lives. We have half-truths. And if we have this, this low ceiling of Christ's work, without seeing ourselves as part of this cosmic warfare, what happens to us? We become obsessed with ourselves. We become so man-centered. We become claustrophobic. We become narcissistic and overly introspective. We feel this sense of flatness and emptiness. And everything about Christianity is obsessed with self-improvement. 
or with what is immediately practical. Or we become so obsessed with the narratives of this world. We become tyrannized by the urgent, by the urgent social and political matters. And we have no depth, no grand vision, no sense of this cosmic world historical significance. We become so enraptured with what is so all-important to this world, with what we see on the evening news, with what we read on the web browser. And I'm asking, where are those who see what's really happening? Where are those who have a reference point outside of themselves? Where are those who have stretched out their hands and pierced through the flatness of this meaningless age? Where are those who have lifted their eyes to the heavens, who set their minds on things above? Where are those who realize that we are part of something big and impressive, who see the stronger one has dealt the, the decisive blow to Satan, and who have seen the kingdom of God has come upon us. Well, that's my hope, Beacon Light, is that we would be a people, perhaps strange to this world, because we have contact with another world. Well, let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray, O oh Lord, that you would give us eyes of faith to see the unseen and future realities. God, naturalism and materialism and the scientism of this world so easily infiltrates us, Lord, and we begin to think that all there is is this, and Lord God, so many of us feel the meaninglessness of our age and the flatness. And oh God, I pray that they would be beckoned. They would, be, they would see, Lord God, this grand cosmic drama that we all participate in. That we would have a sense of cosmic gravity about our decisions. That we would realize, oh Lord, the great significance of our lives as those of servants of God. Dear Lord, we have great confidence that Jesus Christ will be triumphant, that he has bound Satan, that Christ is on a victorious march throughout this world. I pray, O oh Lord, that we would join him. God, God, save us from anthropocentrism, man-centeredness, Save us, Lord God, from being so obsessed with ourselves and give us a big, grand vision of reality. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.